You're listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. If you are a guest, we are finishing up our series over the next two Sundays in the book of Acts. Uh, We chose Acts kind of because Acts is a book of transition, as we see the earthly ministry of Jesus, and now it's the ministry of Jesus through his Holy Spirit, through the life of the apostles and the disciples, and as the church goes out, we continue to see that. Um, So we wanted to remind ourselves of this outward movement of preaching and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ that we want to do as a church what we always want to be about. So uh, we are in that going to take one passage this week and one passage next week uh, that help us both to summarize a lot of what has gone on, especially next week's uh, Acts chapter 28, um, and we look at this kind of summary and how Luke even leaves the book kind of open-ended. He leaves this idea. He doesn't tell you what happened to Paul as he's under house arrest. He doesn't, he just kind of leaves this idea and he ends with this idea that the gospel's continuing to go out. But before that, a big chunk of the end of Acts is Paul trying to get to Rome and being in prison. And so that's where it will be. Patrick preached last week on Paul's speech to the Ephesian elders, and that was done kind of as he was on his way back to Jerusalem. He gets to Jerusalem. People want to kill him, of course, because they don't like the idea that he is preaching uh, what he is preaching, that Jesus saves. And so because of that message, he is being threatened and harassed. Well, he is brought... uh, to Caesarea. Caesarea is a little coastal city there. And so he's on the coast and he's waiting to head to Rome. That's his desire. And one time he gives a story, this is what God has done. And the leader at that time kind of kept him in prison for two years because his hope was that Paul would bribe him and then he could let him go. And so that didn't happen. Paul just kept waiting, appealing to Caesar, wants to get to Rome. And these leaders, Felix, Festus, they're looking at what he's saying and and they're going, I don't really see anything wrong with you or what you're, what you're doing. There's, there's no offense that demands that you stay in prison, but you've made the appeal to go to Rome, and so to Rome you will eventually go. And we are going to get to a spot soon where we'll be seeing how he's talking about what God has done, the Apostle Paul, what God has done in his life. Um, And it's going to remind, hopefully, us of something. It always reminds me of something. But there's just um, a couple ideas. So this is a little test I do for myself, easy, hard. Something easy, talking. Now, you might not think talking is easy, but it's pretty easy if I can get you on the right track. I just have to find what you like. In fact, this is the secret to being a good conversationalist. Just find whatever the other person likes and get them to start talking about it. You don't have to say a word, and then the conversation gets done, and they're like, man, that was great. I really enjoyed talking to so-and-so. You might even say with, but you weren't talking with them. You were just talking at them. So a little secret that I have is in moments of emotional exhaustion for me or conversational exhaustion, I just try to find the thing the other person likes. I'm like, hey, tell me about X, and they just go. And you go, man, look at the time. I got to go. Thank you so much. I go, oh, I didn't get to hear anything about you or what's going on in your life. And you're like, that was kind of the point. Trying to get through this thing. Got to go on to the next. Talking is a pretty easy thing if you get on the right track. But talking isn't always easy. In fact, something that's hard or difficult is talking about things that matter. Right? Talking about things that are significant. So your spouse comes to you and they might, I asked this question to Courtney, but your spouse comes to you and you go like, how are we doing? Fine. I guess we're fine. 
But you know that how are we doing is like, it's just soaked with subtext. It doesn't, do, it, like, you're like, oh gosh, I gotta be sure I slice this thing the right way, because if not, like I've hit an artery, game over, we don't know what's gonna happen. Talking about what's going on in your own heart and in your own life is also a really difficult thing. In fact, you know, it's, it's funny, talking about our relationship with Jesus can be a really hard thing. It's the thing that defines us as Christians, as followers of Christ, Jesus, but yet talking to people about Jesus, talking to people about how Jesus changed us, like that's, that's like all of a sudden we become fearful at times. Oh, I mean, they might think that I'm weird. I don't know if they're gonna like what I have to say. It just comes across as awkward. You know, if you're ever at a coffee shop and you're talking to somebody about what's going on with the Lord and you're kind of, you know people are around you and you're kind of like, uh, so, like, so Jesus. And so we were doing this thing, but then all of a sudden you start talking about your kids and we can't shut you up. And so we see this thing where as it kind of enters into the realm of what's going on with how the Lord is working in your life or in your heart, all of a sudden we kind of get a little more tentative. But when it comes to talking about other things in your life, man, we could go on forever. Just ask a grandparent about their grandkids. You're done for days. You don't need to say a word. Just gonna go, go, great. Well, today we're gonna be in Acts chapter 26. And much of, I've said this before, much of the book of Acts is about, is driven by speeches, by talking. It's people talking about things that are the most significant. Talking about the things that are the most significant and doing it without apology because they know what Jesus has done for them and they know that is the most significant work and they know that that's all that it's gonna take to save people is to have them put faith in Jesus and so they often don't even seem to waste their time talking about other things, they just wanna Cut to the chase and talk about the Lord. Well, Paul's on trial, essentially. He's waiting trial. He's waiting to give his defense. So he's in prison. And two times he's to give his testimony. They're going to tell us about what's gone on in your life. And in Acts chapter 26, we have that second telling of his testimony. And what we're going to be able to do through this passage is just see how he talks about what matters most. Because the truth is this, is that everybody saved by grace, they have a story to tell. Everybody saved by grace has a story to tell. You do, I do. If Jesus has done a work in your life, then you can talk about it. You can share about it. But that's so often not something that we want to do. So, Acts chapter 26, Paul and Caesarea for the second time talking. It's been two years since he was put there. He gave his defense, talked about what had gone on in his life, two years because the leader's waiting for a bribe to let him go. He doesn't give the bribe, so now he's, all the leadership is turned over, so he's saying it again, what's going on in his life. So that's where we're going to be. He begins to talk to Agrippa. There's multiple Herod Agrippas here, but we're now into the second Agrippa. And in verse 4, you hear Paul begin to talk. He says this, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time 
if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day, and for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself am convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus. I was convinced, sorry, not am convinced. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So we're gonna stop right there. He leads in, you know, the Jews here know, if they would talk about it, if they would mention it, then they know that I was raised in the strictest party, the rule-following Pharisees. I was there. I was serious about my faith. Anybody could say it. Anybody could see it. I know these guys. We played baseball together growing up. Like They know what has gone on in my life, if they would testify to it. In fact, I was so zealous for this that I would, blast, or I, would, I would try to get believers to blaspheme. I would cast my vote against them so they would be in prison. And this is what we realize right here, right then and there. <clears throat> because Paul talks about how great he was in a worldly sense, how I was raised. He talks about how he was zealous to persecute followers of Jesus. He's about to get to something, but we want to stop and just say this. Our life before Jesus always needs to be redeemed. Now, what do I mean by that? I always needs to be redeemed is that so often we, go, we have this kind of way in this world of going, well, they're a pretty good person. And I understand what you mean by good in a worldly sense. Like, are there nice people? Yeah, there are nice people. Are there kind people? Of course there are kind people. Are there loving people? Yes, there are loving people. People who don't know Jesus can be loving it's not the kind of love based in what Jesus has done for us, but because they're made in the image of God, yeah, they, 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 they reflect aspects of their creator even though the fall has hindered our ability to do any of it. So yeah, loving, kind, understanding. They can even smile and be happy, right? Christians don't hold the market on smiling. But Paul goes, hey, listen, I, I was... I was in tip-top shape. I was religious, raised by the strictest party. I followed after it from my youth. I was so zealous for it that as people started to seem to take others away, they started to follow after Jesus, I was persecuting them. So right then and there, what does he do? He lumps himself in with people who need Christ. He lumps himself in with people who were not good enough. Even though he leads in with, I was pretty good. He says the same thing in Philippians. He goes, you want to compare resumes? Listen, I'm going to win. I have a better earthly resume than you do. And he starts to list it. Done this, done this, done this, done this. Raised like this, like this, like this, like this. But whatever was a gain, I now count for a loss for the cause of Christ. 
whatever I had in my corner in an earthly sense, I now just go ahead and abandon because all I want to do is gain Christ and be found in him. That's all I want. Look again in verse 9. I myself, Paul, was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I was convinced that I should oppose this. And what is he saying? I'm not good enough. I thought I was doing the right thing. I thought I was on the right track. I thought everything was okay, but you know what? It was not, though I was sure of it. What might you, what might I be sure of this morning? Convinced of that is nothing. He continues with this idea as he moves into his confrontation with Jesus and he says this. Verse 12. In this connection of persecuting people of foreign cities, in this connection I journey to Damascus with the authority of the commission and the commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. This is all Acts chapter nine. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I said, who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand up on your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to things in which we have, you have seen and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may, be, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And so what do you see him talking about? Man, this, is, this was my life. This is what I thought I needed, but you know what? Jesus came. Jesus came and it destroyed me. It destroyed me. Here I was going in one direction and Jesus said go in another direction. This is what happens when Jesus shows up in our life. Our life, he'll confront us and when it's confronted by Jesus, it demands a response. Demands. Jesus doesn't sit around waiting going, hey, we'll just talk to your family and let me know what you think. Hey, go ahead, check your schedule. Is Tuesday good for you? Is, you know, like, we wanna get breakfast together Tuesday and we can talk about you following me. Jesus shows up and he's like, hey, Paul, Saul, I'm here today first to realize, you need to know you're persecuting me, even though he's persecuting the church. You like that? That through persecuting the church, it's happening to Jesus because the church is the expression of Jesus in this world. The people of God built together, held together by his Holy Spirit. So you're persecuting me, and he goes, hey, no, stand up on your feet. I am gonna let you know what's gonna happen. You are gonna go to the Gentiles, and you're gonna open their eyes that they might receive salvation, the forgiveness of sins, be brought into what I am doing. So with that, Jesus confronts Saul. 
And there's a choice in that confrontation, isn't there? Now, we might go, no, 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 no. There's, there's never a choice. I get what you mean in that, right? Theologically, I get you go, no, 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 like irresistible grace, that when Jesus shows up in our life, we, we follow after it. But anytime, even after our salvation, when we read the scriptures and we see something and it says, obey this or do this or live like this or follow after this, aren't we also confronted? Will I do this or will I not? Will I obey or will I disobey? Will I follow or will I not? And sometimes we just wanna jam our heads into the sand and go, I don't wanna hear this, God. I don't wanna hear this, I don't wanna do this, I wanna live my life. And, and many of us, if not all of us, have these nagging things, don't they? Don't we? They're like, oh man, I know. I know that this aspect of my life is, is hindering my following of Jesus. I know it. And Jesus is always coming and calling that out. So when Jesus confronts us, it always demands a decision, and that decision is either obey or disobey, accept or reject. Now the good news is this, if you're here this morning and you have not put your faith in Jesus, there is still time. There's still time to Look to him to turn from your sins and from your life and put faith in him that you might be found alive in Christ. For as long as we are breathing, there is opportunity to obey. For every single person in this room. And you can read the passage and go, well, it doesn't really seem like in this moment Jesus is giving Saul a choice. I would agree with that. It's kind of like, boom, here we go, you're doing this. It's all like, all right. And some of us have had those moments, haven't we? Where like, it's like this way or that way, right? The road signs are there and we just go. We know, if I keep going in this direction, I, I'm gonna die. I have to go in that direction. And then some of us, the Lord is using like these little fine tools and instruments. It's like, hey, that part right there, you know it needs to go? That thing right there, you know, it needs to leave. So there he was with Saul. He's talking about his conversion. And Saul's like, listen, I was a good dude. I was following after what I thought was right. It wasn't right. And you know how I know? Because Jesus showed up and made me realize it. And this is what can start to happen as you hear somebody talking, talking about them coming to faith. Like, what has God done in your life? Because they talk about it like that. They'll say things like this. I thought I was the bomb. I thought I had everything together. It doesn't always mean that. But it could be like, I was living for myself, right? I was living for myself and what I thought was right. Everyone in this room today, for the most part, I'm sure there's gonna be some exceptions, I might be one of them. You're doing what you think is right, even in this moment. You're doing exactly what you think you need to be doing. But it is not until the Lord shows up into our life that we realize that we could be doing the incredibly wrong thing. Like we could be trying to build this empire, build this kingdom, build this world, do this thing. I, I mean, until the moment Jesus showed up in Saul's life, Saul thought he was doing A plus work for God. He was convinced that he was doing the right thing. And this is why I love when God converts religious people. I mean, there'll be people who, who are in seminary and they hear the gospel for the first time and they're like, wait a second. I don't actually think that I believe that. I thought I did. I mean, I kind of went to church, did the things, understood that information, 
But there was never a moment that Saul was the same way. I could tell you, I could quote more Bible to you. I mean, he could quote more Bible to us than any of us could quote combined. He knew it. Backwards, forwards, up, down, Da Vinci Code. Like, he could do all those things. But he didn't know Jesus. What are we building? What are we working toward? Are we doing what we just think is right and convinced ourselves? Or has the Lord shown up into our hearts and gone, hey, you are going in the wrong direction and you are believing the wrong things. And so if you're familiar with Acts chapter 9, he's blinded. This is Saul's conversion. This is years past now. But he's blinded. He goes to the house there in Damascus on Straight Street. And this guy Ananias comes to him and after three days goes, Hey, brother Saul, the Lord has sent me here that you may regain your sight. And and he baptizes them. And there's that moment where the scales fall off his eyes. And for the rest of his life, he's moving in a different direction. And we see that in the next verses. I'm going to read them to you. The idea here is that our life with Jesus, walking with Jesus, demonstrates change. I have to be careful with that word because we all like to measure people's change based on our own. So if we're going to leave it hanging, it demonstrates change. There is something that happens qualitatively in the life of Saul after his encounter with Jesus and his faith in Jesus. So in verse 19, let me read these to you because the first thing we see is that he's obedient to the calling and the second thing we see is that he desires for people to know him. So let's look at that obedience first. Verse 19, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. They're living out a faith that they believe. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple, tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and to great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So now you see this turn, right? There's this moment where he's like, I thought I had it together and I didn't. Jesus showed up. He said, this is what I'm gonna do with you. And then Saul, he goes, and so I just did the thing Jesus said I was gonna do. I was not disobedient to what I saw and I began to talk about Jesus with people. Large and small, great, high and mighty, and nobodies. I went to everybody and told them that they need Jesus. Why? Because this is what everything in the scripture said. What the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that Christ would suffer, that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. So I've just been after that since Jesus found me. That's what I do. That's how I teach. That's what I'm about. That's why I'm in prison right now. And so you see this moment of transformation. And he's not afraid to say it. He's not embarrassed over who he used to be because Jesus has covered over it. He's not embarrassed that Jesus confronted him in his sin and that he turned. And he's not embarrassed to say, this is what I'm doing now because of what Jesus has done. 
This is how I'm living. This is what I'm doing. Now, this isn't, this is rather succinct, right? If he's at Starbucks, this lasts like seven hours. But this is rather succinct. And you see these moments, and you can follow that throughout the course of the book of Acts. You follow that story. Because he comes to faith. Cornelius and the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 with Peter. So now we know the Gentiles are starting to believe. And then the Jerusalem church, it kind of, it doesn't disappear. But in regards to its significance in the last half of the book of Acts, it kind of diminishes. In Acts chapter 13, and Antioch become kind of the sending church. And so Paul and Barnabas in the first missionary journey. And then Paul and Saul in the second and third missionary journeys. Luke shows up, they're doing stuff. And so, so he begins to preach and proclaim and talk about what Jesus has done. Tells the story time and time again of God's work of salvation that can be found in Jesus and life that can be found in Jesus time and time and time again. And so there is change demonstrated in the obedience to his calling and then there's second, I love the end, 24 through 29. I love the end because his speech is basically done. So look at verse 24 if you have your Bibles open. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, buttering him up. But I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things because he was a student of Judaism. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. This is Agrippa. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, listen, listen. In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Like, that's the mic drop. Are you trying to convert me? Are you trying to convert me right now? Now listen to what he says. Yes. (laughs) That's what verse 29 is. Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day, right, kind of yelling it out so anybody who's around can hear, but all who hear me this day (laughs) might become such as I am except for these chains, being in prison. So what's he saying? Wait, are you, trying to convert, are you trying to convert me in this moment? Yes, I am. And not only you, but in fact, anyone within my voice. That's why like at Starbucks, when we start to talk quieter about what's going on in our life, we should probably speak up. Hey, yeah, this is what's going on. This is what I see. This is what God's done. But that timidity that sometimes we have, Paul doesn't have. And I need to learn from that. <clears throat> I was reading in one of the Nine Marks books, uh, they have a book for every mark because you gotta keep presenting stuff. So there's a book on evangelism by J. Mac Stiles. And I loved his definition of evangelism. It's actually, I'm sad about that because it's not the definition I have. But I have to adjust my definition now. Teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. Now before we get all car salesmen and freaked out by that statement, here's what I like about it. this is a gross generalization. Let's just say that this pen contains the content of the gospel. Okay? 
You know, like we're sharing, we're talking. And it might be just through the telling of the story through the scriptures, as we see in Acts chapter uh, 13, when he's just preaching, giving it, proclaiming the scriptures. It might be in Acts chapter 17, when he's with a Gentile audience, and he's just talking about what God has done, but not as, not as just saturated with scripture. It could be here through his own testimony, where you hear the gospel, and he's talking about how he changed. It doesn't really matter, but, but, but teaching the gospel, teaching what Jesus has done, that's great. But he adds this with an aim to persuade. Not with an aim to coerce, okay? But with an aim to persuade. So this pen contains the gospel, right? We're just looking at it. It really doesn't. How dare you do that and contain the gospel? I get it. It's one thing to kind of go, hey, this is a pen, right? Look at that pen. Pretty cool, huh? Right? But it's another thing to explain and then go, hey, I need to know what you think about this pen. Tell me what you think about what I just shared, right? That, 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 that's, the, that's a little switch between just talking about it and talking about it so that the other person's heart might be engaged. Now, we know that the work of salvation is God's, not ours, right? No one in this room can save another person. You can't do it. Try a million times. It will not work. You do not have the power to transform a heart. That is a work of God. Amen. However, Paul had no problem in, in verse 29 saying, hey, I would to God that not only you but also all who hear me this day might become as I am. He had no problem saying, yes, I want you to believe. I want you to know it. I want to talk with you about it. Let's spend time engaging the fact that Jesus is real and that he changes people. And it's that little switch from just talking about it to talking about it in a way that engages the heart and goes, please, what do you think? Have you heard anything like this before? As you're talking to a friend, perhaps for the work God has done in your life, you go, do you have any questions about that? What do you, what do you, what do you think? Is, is, that the, is that the gospel that you've heard? And in all of those moments, what are you doing? But you're trying to show them the goodness of Jesus in a way that we pray and long for might bring them to faith. But we never know when the Spirit is going to do that work. And so, <clears throat> I think of this. Can you tell your story? But do you have a story first? Do you have a story? Do you have a story of what Jesus has done? Of how Jesus has changed. And, I, and it doesn't, sometimes we have to like go, well, golly, he didn't show up for me on the Damascus Road. When we preached in Acts chapter 9, we talked about the fact that not all of us have these moments that feel instantaneous. Though conversion is always instantaneous, it's not like we're 50% saved and then 75% saved and then 90% saved. Like it's zero to 100 in a moment. But that process might take years. That process might take three minutes. But there is a moment from darkness to light, as we see Paul say. It's not from like darkness to dim and we're kind of half saved. 
There's a moment from darkness to light. So a question for you this morning is, do you have a story? And what I mean by that is, do you know Jesus? Have you experienced the goodness of his grace and his mercy? Can you live confidently in what he has done for you in dying and in rising, the sending of his spirit to give us life through faith in him? That salvation is not by works, but through faith. It is a gift, says Ephesians 2. And do you have a story? And the second is this. Can you tell your story? Can you talk about it? Can you actually spend time talking about God's work of salvation in your heart? Not because, not because it's just really cool to be able to do that, but because it's helpful to be able to talk to people about things that matter. Say, let me tell you what God's done in me. Let me tell you about the transformation that happened in me. Because I was just like that. I was just like that. I thought I had everything together. I thought I knew everything that needed to be known. I thought that I was on top of the world. And you know what I realized? I was in control of nothing. You know who is in control? Jesus, who holds everything together by the word of his power. So here I was in my little corner of the universe thinking that I had it all together, and I didn't. And I had to surrender all of that ambition to Jesus and realize that he died for me and that everything I was trying to build, I could not build. Everything I was trying to do, I could not do. However your story might be, it always seems to have those same elements that we see in Acts 26. Man, I was like this. Now, it might not be I thought I had everything together. It might be, man, everything was falling apart. And Jesus showed up. Mine goes something like this. I thought I was an okay dude. I mean, this is how mine goes. Pretty good kid, good in school, good life. Like, things were, things were fine. My mom had a joke which is like, my kids raised themselves. Things got along, we got along. I mean, other than the sibling rivalry you generally have, or like I took my brother's training wheels off his bike too soon, he got paranoid about it, right? Like, and so like big brother stuff that you do. So I was kind of a jerk sometimes. But in general, if you just talked about who I was in a worldly sense, it wouldn't be like, man, that Hans, is, he, that Googler kid's terrible. And then all of a sudden, in high school, somebody started to talk to me about what Jesus had done, and I had heard this thing a million times. I could, I could declare to you the content of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for my sins, rose from the grave. I could communicate that content with you forever. And I have no idea other than by the work of God what happened in that moment. When somebody was sharing it, I realized I had never believed it. Never. Not one time had I actually believed what I had heard. I could just talk about it. 
But the transformation that comes through faith in Jesus had actually never sunken into my heart. And so I went and I talked to my friend Steve, who's still a dear friend, and I stared at him and I said, I need to change. And I didn't even know what that meant. But using Bible language, what that meant was I need to repent. There's the R word. I need to change. There's something, I'm, I'm doing something in one direction and, and that's not the right thing. And it was weird because again, there was n- like no great offense that might exist in me. I mean, one time in fifth grade, I stuck a quarter in a locker and jammed it. And I had to pay like $25 for them to repair the lock on the locker. Beckendorf, it's not even there anymore in Tumball. Like, but I remember that. And I remember almost crying about it because I felt so bad. And I can recall all the details. But like, in general, yeah, jam a quarter in a locker, that's all right. But I didn't have a rap sheet. But the world tries to whitewash behavior, don't they? Into like, good and not that good. And that didn't work for me. I realized that who I thought I was was not right. And what I thought was going on in my life was not right. Why? Because somebody started to share with me that Jesus died for me. And I can't even explain what was going on, but I knew that I needed to change because of what I had heard. That Jesus came, he lived this life, he died for me. And since then, since then I have, with all that I am able to do by the power of his spirit, I have longed to follow him and honor him and I do it at 2% on my best day. But I long to follow him and obey him. I don't wanna be disobedient to being his disciple. To be able to talk to people about what God has done and even what God is doing is always one of the most significant conversations that you can have. So do you have a story first? Meaning, do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Will you follow him? And it's funny uh, because Time and time again, when I was living in Louisiana, people would tell me stories. I was sitting right here. I mean, they could, they could point to spots in the sanctuary that they were sitting when they put their faith in Jesus. I was right here. I was sitting right there. Oh, I remember right there in this spot. I was weeping. Whatever it might be, like, they can talk about it when the good news of Jesus became real to me. And they did it without fear of what others might think. They just said, this is, this is what God has done. And I love in Paul's story this. He wasn't worried about talking about who he used to be. So many of us carry shame about that part of our life before Jesus. Embarrassment. I mean, Paul was going, I was cool with people dying. I was okay with that. I would cast my vote for the death of people following Jesus. Jesus changed me. And when you've been saved by grace, you can talk about who you were before Jesus as one that has been forgiven by Jesus. There's no fear there. Because really, 
when we're telling our story, whose story are we actually telling? The Lord's. We're telling the story of his saving work and how it intersected at some place, at some time, with our hearts. And whether God has us before Agrippa or God has us around the Christmas Eve dinner table or God has us at the grocery store, we can talk about what he's done in our lives because it's always really about what he's doing and the transformation that he brings. I want to pray that we can articulate more and more of the work of Jesus in our lives and that we do it boldly and we do it joyfully because it's a story worth telling time and time and time again. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Fathers, we get near to the end of the book of Acts. We praise you for the brothers and sisters who are worshiping you in heaven because of the work of those who brought that message out. And at every intersection of what you're doing in our lives and our hearts, there is transformation. You are to be praised. Father, might we as a church family be able to tell the story of your salvation time and time again. May it never tire us. May we not have shame over who we were before Jesus showed up in our lives. But be able to speak about that honestly and joyfully because we know it has been forgiven and we are now new creations. The old has gone away and the new has come. Anchor those truths deeply in our hearts that we might follow and obey all you ask of us, Lord, wherever we might be. Strengthen us and empower us by your spirit to speak boldly of your work of salvation. In whatever context that might be, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.